Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining me. I just finished Skype talking with Ho Feng Hung about his new book, The China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World. This came out with Columbia University Press in 2016. Now the... Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining me. I just finished Skype talking with Ho Feng Hung about his new book, The China Boom, Why China Will Not Rule the World. This came out with Columbia University Press in 2016. Now, the book takes on and explores a number of intersecting and interweaving threads and concepts and ideas that are really timely, really important, and really, really engaging as we understand not just um, China's economy right now and how to situate the contemporary um, economy of China within the recent historical past, but also how to understand the significance and role of China and Chinese, uh, the Chinese economy within a larger global frame. So as you'll hear me talking about um, at the beginning of the interview, the book has two major goals. The first goal is to look at the origins, and you'll again hear this um, in a, a little bit, of the capitalist boom in China, right? This takes us back to the title of the book, and the political formations and the social formations in the 80s that really gave rise to this boom. So the book does several things in pursuing this particular goal. It considers why capitalism did not spontaneously emerge in 18th century China. It looks at how and why 19th and early 20th century state builders failed to foster state-directed capitalism, um, as they had done in Japan, and you'll hear us talking about that as well. It considers how the Mao period, and specifically the rural, agrarian, and urban industrial developments in that period, laid the foundation for the capitalist boom of the 80s. And it also, in the words of the book, discusses the regional, global, and socio-political contexts at the turn of the 21st century that have made such a boom possible. Ho Feng um, maintains here, and this is from the very beginning of the book, that there's no such thing as Chinese capitalism. That's fundamentally different from other kinds of capitalism. Instead, the book explores how capitalism adapts to, thrives in, and falters under Chinese conditions. Now, the second goal of the book is to explore, and again, you'll hear us talking about this, the global impacts and the global effects of this boom in China, and also the limits of that boom. And in doing that, it critically assesses four common conceptions of how China is reshaping the world. I'll take you through these four, and then I will leave you to the interview. Number one, it critically assesses the common conception that China is, in the words of the book, challenging the free market ideology and global free market or neoliberal order that the U.S. has been promoting since the 1980s. Common conception number two, the common perception that China is both reversing 
a long-term trend of income polarization between the West and the rest, right? The West and the rest of the world. And that it's providing a new model and new opportunities for developing countries. You'll hear us talking about this um, second conception and then how it's a, a lot more complicated than that. Three, the conception that China is challenging the existing world order by challenging or replacing the dominance of the West in general and the U.S. specifically. And you'll hear us talking about that. And four, the conception that China is, um, in the words of the book, rescuing the global economy by becoming the most powerful driver of growth. And you'll also hear us talking about that as well. Um, as Ho Feng puts it here in the book, the boom is destined to collapse. And we'll talk about the implications of that um, in the hour to come. So I'll leave you to it um, and just say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the support of the channel that listening is. Um, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. I'm here today to talk with Ho Feng Hung about his new book, The China Boom. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Ho Feng, and thanks very much both for writing a really provocative uh, book that's very much a pleasure to read, and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kara. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the question that is traditional for the channel, and here's how we'll get there. In the preface of the book, you talk about your family background that brought you to the study of China and to an engagement with issues surrounding and, and involving China. So let's mm -hmm. talk a little bit about how you came not only to work on China, but how you came to the field as an academic space. So Hefeng, could you start by saying what brought you to the study of China and the sociology of China specifically? Yeah, this is um, the, quite interesting that when I uh, went to college in Hong Kong, uh, in the Chinese University of Hong Kong, in the early 1990s, uh, I wasn't a major majoring in uh, sociology or any social science and humanities discipline. I majored in electronic engineering. Uh, but at that time, it was uh, quite a turbulent time in Hong Kong that uh, the 1989 uh, student movement has just ended a lot long ago, and uh, Hong Kong has been kind of facing the 1997 sovereignty handover. And I got involved in the student organizations uh, in the universities, and uh, there's a, um, a sense of... Um, uh, among the young people that there's a sense that uh, we are the generation that uh, is going to be doing things that change things uh, about Hong Kong, about China. And uh, many of them actually, uh, uh, I have a lot of friends that who start in like the business school and medical school, they all shift to different social science disciplines because of this kind of conviction. So I'm one of them and uh, moved to sociology uh, to study uh, a lot for the sake of studying China and, and Asia, but also for the sake of changing it. So it is why I moved to sociology in the first place. Uh, and, uh, and I read a lot of um Books definitely, but at the same time, uh, uh, in the early 1990s, that uh, in many wars, team visit Hong Kong and then feed the Scotch Post visit Hong Kong and talk about all this fancy theory about world system analysis, global capitalism, and uh, state and social revolution, and so on and so forth. So it is the back my intellectual background to move to sociology and to study of China, including fancy theory. Yeah, China. including fancy <laughs> theories. Yes. <laughs> That's always an important part. Yes. <laughs> so early in the book, um, you lay out two main research projects that have defined your intellectual agenda, as you describe it here. Yeah. The first yeah. one is, and this is in the words of the book, an attempt to delineate the origins and particularities of political modernity in China by way yeah. of protests from early modern to contemporary times. Yes. And the second um, major research project is an attempt yeah. to, in the words of the book, trace the origins, unveil the core dynamics, and assess the global repercussions of China's economic resurgence in the world. Now, the book that we're talking about today falls under the umbrella of this last project that I just mentioned. So mm -hmm. let's talk about that. How, Ho Feng, did you come to a focus on this particular project, and what brought you to um, really the focus that makes up the core of this book. Let's talk a little bit about the genesis of the project for you. Yes, uh, definitely. That uh, Actually, the two books uh, have some internal connection uh, to one another. And uh, I didn't mention it explicitly in the preface, but uh, I realized that it's so important I should have mentioned it. That is the 
both of my project protests with Chinese characteristics and uh, protests, uh, petition riots and uh, protests in mid Qing dynasty and this one, the China boom, they are both uh, implicitly or explicitly a response to the California school in historiography, China historiography. That because when I was pursuing a PhD in sociology, it, um, uh, in the world system tradition uh, in the late 1990s, it was the beginning and actually it is uh, the, the uh, not yet the heyday, but it's the beginning of the California school that uh, Kenneth Pomeranz is about to publish uh, The Great Divergence and Bin Wong's uh, Try to Transform already published. Um, and as you know, that the California school is a kind of a term created by a sociologist. That is uh, one of my favorite sociologists, Jack Goldstone, when he was in UC Davis and he grouped this uh, um, historian, Chinese historian, that uh, argued that uh, the divergence, economic divergence between China and Europe uh, was not as deep-rooted uh, as many um, sociologists and historians used to think, like uh, Philip Huang, Max Weber, and all this. Uh, because in the old historiography, that uh, in, uh, industrial revolution happened in Europe, but not in China, uh, um, and China became uh, poor after the 19th century. It had deep cultural institutional uh, root, uh, like uh, some people would trace it back to medieval period and some people trace trace it back all the way to the Roman Empire and Han Dynasty and all this kind of cultural institutional difference. And the California school, including Ken Pomeranz and Bin Wong, and of course, uh, Andrew Gunnar Frank, who wrote the book, uh, The Reorient, uh, basically a synthesis of all this uh, California school to address the um, contemporary issue that the argument is that this divergence between China and Europe was a lot deep and it was quite contingent and accidental even then. And, and China economically was at least as advanced as Europe uh, up until the late 18th century uh, or even uh, more advanced than Europe. And it was just a kind of a contingent shift uh, because of all kind of crisis and, and situation that uh, uh, allowed Europe to go ahead and then China became subjugated and poor uh, in the next 100 and 150 years. Uh, so this is a historiography. It is very inspiring um, uh, at the time that is the late 1990s. And uh, many sociologists and social scientists like Andrew Gunderfrank used it to address the contemporary issue of China's rise. And actually, it is no longer restricted to California school, and you can see this kind of uh, conception in many popular writing and academic writing, even not China scholars. Uh, like um, you read uh, uh, Farid Sakawiya, Post-American World, you read Joseph Light, The Soft Power. Um, they all have the notion that actually um, China rise right now in the last 20, 30 years is actually not so surprising because it's just China coming back to uh, its historical place at the center of the world. That was uh, our, that was the situation and that was the status quo uh, and uh, very, uh, uh, up to uh, the late uh, 18th century. So it is just the, the time between 1800 to 1950 is just a kind of a brief uh, deviation from this historical normal. So it is this kind of California school and the conception uh, about China in history and in contemporary world that inspired me to do these two projects. And of course, I have um, both agreement and disagreement with uh, this group of scholarship. Uh, the disagreement part is that um, uh, you cannot only look at economics first. Uh, so it is why I do my first book. I look at the um, trajectory of state formation, uh, uh, political ideology, and um, the pattern of protest to look at uh, how actually China diverged deeply from Europe, not economically, but politically. And uh, it is this political divergence uh, defined by the Confucianist state and the uh, popular protest conception of justice, which is very, very different from uh, Enlightenment Europe conception of um, the popular sovereignty and all that, uh, that determined divergence later on in the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, and um, and my um, historical analysis of Chinese protests has also extended into the contemporary period to look at how this traditional conception of justice and traditional expectation of the state continue to influence the repertoire of protests in 20th century and contemporary China. So it is my first book. Uh, and uh, dealing with uh, my first disagreement, 
and uh, our critical dialogue with um, the California School. And my second book now that is a China boom uh, is to look at uh, uh, the dynamics behind uh, contemporary China rise. So in disagreement with the California School, I uh, don't see the contemporary rise of China is going back to um, China's historical place uh, in the early modern times or earlier. Uh, this is a different dynamics. Um, the China is not becoming a little center of the world because there's a lot of uh, uh, talk recently, uh, in the recent years, about uh, uh, China's going to rule the world and there's actually a very best-selling book um, uh, on that, uh, with that particular title, that is when China ruled the world and uh, China is replacing the U.S. as the world hegemon. So there's a lot of this kind of expectation, not among historians, but among the social scientists who are inspired by the California school. Uh, so my uh, this book, China Boom, is to debunk this uh, myth and uh, telling the story that actually the China's uh, contemporary rise uh, is very much uh, this, uh, um, dependent on the U.S. hegemony, uh, and uh, it has a lot of internal contradiction. It is going to meet a lot of challenges that uh, it is not, easy to uh, tackle. Um, uh, in the end, China might become a, a normal capitalist powers like Japan and Germany uh, together with um, uh, US, uh, but definitely is not becoming a kind of alternative uh, economic model uh, uh, or a, cent- a new center of the world. Great. Um, thank you. I should just kind of turn it over to you. <laughs> She's like, hey, talk about your book. I'm just going to be here for a few minutes because you have a lot to say. This is great. Okay, so as we move into the introduction um, to the book, you lay out two goals. And there's a lot more happening there, but we'll kind of move into the chapters and readers So the first goal of the book, um, as you say um, in the introduction and in the words of the introduction, is to outline the historical origins of China's capitalist mm-hmm. boom and the social and political formations in the 80s, mm-hmm. the 1980s, that gave rise to this boom. And so listeners will hear uh, um, the mention of origins. And there's, mm-hmm. um, I think in both of your projects, as you've described, and there's a really interesting mm-hmm. concern with origins and with tracing mm-hmm. that permeates both projects. Yeah. The yeah. second goal of the book is to explore, um, again, in the words of the book, the global effects of China's capitalist boom and the limit of that boom. And we'll talk mm-hmm. about this. Like by the end of our conversation and by the end of the book, um, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to, you're going to argue, right, that the boom is destined to mm-hmm. collapse. Um, and so mm-hmm. we'll get to that, I hope, by the end of our conversation. But first, mm-hmm. let's get into the first part of the book. So the first part of the book traces the rise of capitalism in China. <laughs> from the 18th mm-hmm. century to now, as a way of getting at, again, the origins of the contemporary, the current capitalist mm-hmm. So chapter one takes us into the 17th and 18th centuries, and it looks at how a massive um, influx and importing of American soldier into China in this period fueled a commercial revolution that, in the words of the book, made China the most advanced market economy in the early modern world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, Hofeng, are you brushing something against your microphone? Uh, I Oh, yes, maybe. Great. Maybe. So whatever you're doing now is awesome. <laughs> okay. So this made China the most advanced market economy in the early modern world, in the words of the, of the book. It also mm-hmm. looks at the aspects of politics and society in this period that limited China's growth, at least relative yes. to the expansion of industrial capitalism in Europe. And here, mm-hmm. the book really engages very explicitly with this mm-hmm. um, California school that you mentioned. Okay, yeah. so I'm going to hit a question back to you to sort of open up um, what mm-hmm. you think um, is most important about what's happening here. Now, yeah. you say here in this book, in this part of the book that Europe saw Again, in the words of the book, the popular popularization of a unique engineering culture and the development mm-hmm. of a strong entrepreneurial elite. And this became really important to what was happening. Why yeah. was this not the case in China and why is this so important? Yes, because uh, uh, first of all, I am adopting a kind of a Braudelian conception of capitalism. And in the social science and humanities, there's a lot of confusion. And many people treat capitalism and market as the same thing, as I outline in the book um, from a Braudelian long durée perspective. Market and capitalism are actually different thing. And market is uh, kind of exchange of goods uh, among small producers, people. Uh, and the end of it is to have everybody has what they want. Uh, 
but capitalism is based on a very different imperative, that is the accumulation of capital for the sake of accumulating more capital. Uh, so this kind of uh, uh, accumulation process, you lead to have concentration of resources into a few hands. Uh, so uh, we lead definitely capitalism. Actually, the people who actually do the accumulating the, of wealth and profits and reinvestment and expand uh, the scale of operation, so on and so forth. So the market and capitalism operate on very different logic. And and while we see, what we see in China in the, the 17th, 18th century is a very prosperous and very advanced market, um, but without capitalists, uh, because without uh, uh, capitalists, you cannot uh, concentrate the surplus and resources gathered in the peasant household, which is a very important unit of production and economic activities in China at that time, as in Europe, uh, and the contemporary and the contemporaneous period. Uh, but without a capitalist class that uh, uh, can accumulate wealth not only over individual capitalist lifetime, but in uh, over generations of capitalist families, and and you don't have the kind of resources uh, available to anybody that can do the the, um, the uh, engineering and inventions and uh, all these kind of uh, not only invention of technology but also invention of uh, business organization organizational production uh, necessary for industrial takeoff. That is what is the big difference between. Uh, China and Europe at the other early modern period. Europe also has a developing and advancing market economy, but what is different in, in, in Europe that China didn't have is a, a very entrenched capitalist class that they are protected by the state and they not only uh, capitalists, not only prosperous in the, their lifetime, but they have a generation and generation of capitalists who look at many of these kind of uh, examples like the Rothschild family and all these early um, industrializers in Britain, they are not really self-made men. Then they have been uh, coming from the merchant families, the banker family, and then in their generation in the early 19th century, they just shift to industry. So there's a kind of accumulation of wealth going on for uh, generation that the China lacked that uh, not in the absolute sense because we also see a lot of uh, merchant groups like the Anhui Metro merchants very well known um, and the Sansi bankers and so on and so forth. But the China pattern is that uh, these capitalists, uh, after they accumulate enough fortunes, they won't prefer to let the future generation, um, the later generation to continue the business and they rather invest the wealth they accumulate into building schools and getting the kids educated and so they can take the examination and become shifting to a bureaucratic career. So many of these, uh, for example, the Anhui merchants uh, that uh, was very prosperous in Suzhou, in the end, they shift to become a bureaucratic families and nobody, a lot many people remember their merchant origin. So it is this kind of intergenerational accumulation strategy is very different. And uh, and you to explain this different, you cannot focus only on the economics. You have to focus on the politics uh, of the, uh, the state, how the state and the society is related. So it is my take on the um, early modern China that there's a very prosperous market with the surplus and resources scattered and decentralized, but uh, China simply lack a kind of entrenched capitalist class like Europe to concentrate and accumulate this service and then create a large business organization that in the end uh, engineer industrial takeoff. That's right. And as the chapter um, further emphasizes, just to kind of put a point on what you're saying, 18th yeah. century China was in fact governed by what you call a centralized paternalist state that was yeah. afraid of the kind of unrest that was coming from rising inequality in that period. And yes. this actually takes us really nicely into the second chapter. So yeah. after looking at the 17th and 18th century, chapter two mm-hmm. takes us into the 19th and 20th. And it yeah. follows generations of state builders in China yeah. as they try to foster state-directed industrialization mm-hmm. in the footsteps yeah. of, as you describe here, Germany and Japan mm-hmm. and Russia. Mm-hmm. And you've already talked a little bit about that. And yeah. as a response to um, what you uh, kind of describe here as the rise of Western imperialism from the mid-19th mm-hmm. century on. Now, this chapter yeah. asks, among other things, what did the Qing state attempt to do and why did that fail? Um, and we've already talked a little bit about this, but another um, project mm-hmm. that comes up here that I'll just mark and then we'll kind of move on um, mm-hmm. is that you mentioned that 
the Qing uh, kind of sponsored an industrialization program that was mm-hmm. meant to move surplus from the countryside to foster industrial capital, right? But there yeah. was too much unrest for yes. work. And so this sort of yeah. focus on unrest also, I think, harkens back to what you were describing earlier yes. in terms of your your interests more broadly in protest and, and, yes. and how that's shaping the story. Um, did you want to say just a little bit about the importance of unrest here before we move to 1949? Yes, there's uh, there's two dimensions of unrest that uh, uh, that uh, in that chapter I briefly compared Japan with China because actually after the mid 19th century Japan and China faced the same uh, kind of challenge that is they have prosperous. Uh, developed market economy with all these surplus and resources decentralized among peasant households. So how you jumpstart an industrial uh, revolution to meet the challenge of Western imperialism uh, by concentrating these resources through the state-directed uh, industrialization program. So the major restoration and the self in Japan and the self-strengthening movement in China in the late 19th century is very similar, but in the end, Japan succeeded and China failed. Uh, uh, one reason uh, uh, is that uh, in um, uh, out in the mid 19th century in China, and after that, even after the, uh, the successful repression of the Taiping Rebellion, there's still a lot of uh, um, the local secret society and heterodox religious groups, and, and peasant rebellions is uh, continue to uh, border the Qing state, and then they also they have uh, something to do with the ethnic uh, composition of the Qing state, as pointed out by the Liu, Liu Qing history people, that. Um, the Qing state by nature is a Manchu state, is a kind of ethnic minority. And in the 18th century, they didn't trust uh, the Han elite. Uh, so the, the imperial army uh, was uh, basically the fully staffed by the Manchus and the Mongols. Uh, but in the 19th century, uh, when the, the unrest became uh, so much trouble to the state, so they start to let the, the local Han elite to arm themselves, as uh, Philip Kuhn's classic study showed, that the local militarization. Uh, in 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 that situation, that uh, the late nineteenth century Qing state is actually uh, politically undergoing a decentralization. That uh, uh, the central government is losing the monopoly of violence, and the local elites are building up their own private armies and militias and all that. Uh, and it definitely eat up a lot of uh, resources that could have been otherwise diverted to um, economic development. And of course, and another factor is that uh, the Western imperialism uh, is always uh, uh, continue to be a big headache to uh, to China even after the Opium War and after the, the Taiping Rebellion. So there's all this kind of external and internal pressure that um, uh, make China's uh, centralized government crumble um, with this local rise of militarized local elite. While in Japan, uh, while everybody, uh, like, I mean, European powers are busy in China. So Japan was relatively uh, not bothered that much by Western imperialism. Only the Americans uh, opening up free trade with them and then European powers has little interest compared to China to craft up uh, Japan. And at the same time, the major state really highly centralized state uh, has a thrust to cracking down on the local daimyo, local um, warlord. Um, and so uh, it has a much stronger centralized institution to effectively concentrate the resource from the peasant to uh, direct uh, uh, state-led industrialization program. So it is the divergence between Japan and China in the end. Japan succeed in this um, late industrialization state directed, but China is not a total failure. It still succeeds, but uh, it's not as successful in Japan. And when the, the Qing Navy was defeated by Japan in the Sino-Japanese War in the 1890s, that this divergence would get larger and larger, and then in the end, the Qing the Empire collapsed and China went through another half century uh, of uh, chaos and uh, war and the failed uh, state building and state centralization. Uh, So it is the divergence. Great. So after um, taking us through this, we move to 1949. And I won't ask you to talk too much about this, but I just want to mark this moment for listeners. Mm -hmm. 
So the Chinese Communist Party came to power in 49, and the CCP undertook a model that was based on a Soviet model, where they collectivized the rural economy and redirected the surpluses from there to feed urban industrialization. And it seems to have been successful, right? Um, By the late 70s, as you describe here, as a result, there was a network in China of state-owned industrial capital and infrastructure. Now, this becomes important because what we're going to see as we now move forward into the next chapter is there were important foundations um, in this way uh, that were laid in the Mao period for what came after and for this boom that we're talking about. And this is one of the really important points, I think, um, that you emphasize here is that this was not, this boom was not a break with the Maoist past. In fact, there are important antecedents or foundations that we have to um, acknowledge and talk about. So let's talk a little bit about that. So chapter three situates the contemporary rise of capitalism on two, in China, on two foundations. One of them is the foundation that was laid in the Mao period. And we just talked a little bit about that. You talk here about the importance of having a large, educated, rural surplus labor force and this mm-hmm. network of state-owned capital. And we just talked a little bit about that. You also talk here about um, the importance of Cold War East Asian capitalism by Asian mm-hmm. allies of the U.S. These are um, areas that are often referred to as the East Asian tigers. You call them mm-hmm. East Asian tigers here, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Yes. Um, so, and then from here, and we're moving at a rapid clip here because there's a lot of book to get to, right? You move yeah. from here to um, talking about what happens after Mao. And here we, we come to two phases of post-Mao market reform. We have yeah. the 1980s, um, where there was a focus on the revival of market economy and rural growth. And then yeah. the 1990s, where there's a focus on the transformation of state-owned enterprises into profit-oriented capitalist corporations. And here's a moment where I want to kind of redirect it a little bit. Mm-hmm. We talk about the example of China Mobile um, mm-hmm. as a, an example of one of these latter 1990s transformations of um, SEOs or state-owned enterprises yes. into profit-oriented capitalist corporations. Can you talk a little bit about that? What do you think is most important for us to understand about this phenomenon and perhaps about this example in order for us to understand what you want us to kind of take away um, most uh, from this part of the book? Yes, China Mobile is an interesting case because it's first it showed a continuity continuity between the, the Mao and the post Mao period. Uh, the China Mobile was uh, floated in the Hong Kong and the New York Stock Exchange as a kind of a champion state owned enterprises, profit oriented enterprises, and still today is uh, a very successful enterprise in terms of its revenue and very big, very influential. But it was created by a collaboration between Wall Street. Uh, financial firms and um, the China State assets and state facilities that was constructed uh, uh, with the legacies of the Mao era because uh, China Mobile, before it was a company, they it was a company actually created from thin air. So uh, all the telecommunications infrastructures and facilities were uh, operated uh, by different levels of government in China. So at some point, the uh, Wall Street financial firm went to Chinese government and throw an idea. What about you concentrate all these assets uh, operated by all local governments and central governments, uh, put all these assets into account book of a new, one newly created state company, and then we help you uh, float this uh, company in foreign uh, stock exchange. And... Um, and then they, they, they struck a deal. I mean, the, the financial firms in Wall Street and the Chinese government uh, at that time, and then created China Mobile and uh, put all these uh, telecommunication facilities uh, uh, previously operated and um, uh, taken care of by local government into that company. And then that company instantly become a company uh, packed with uh, valuable telecommunication assets and uh, monopoly of the market. Uh, and uh, and it was folded in 1997 in the foreign stock exchange market, and it was a success and still is a very big enterprise. So it is a very capitalist enterprise in the sense that its uh, goal uh, is to 
a lot like the state-owned enterprises in the socialist period uh, to provide for employment, to provide welfare benefit to the workers and uh, education, uh, so on and so forth. So they don't have all these kind of uh, social functions. They are purely a capitalist enterprise in the sense that its whole goal is to serve the interests of the shareholders and to make profits. And then it was uh, created out from the telecommunication networks and facilities uh, that uh, the Chinese government built uh, since the Mao period uh, and a collaboration with uh, the Wall Street uh, financial firm. So it is kind of a very exemplary case showing how these uh, national champion state enterprises uh, are about. And because I know that uh, many commentators and critical of um, uh, neoliberal free market economy and things that the China model is superior and very, very different because of this uh, continuous uh, significance of state-owned enterprise that has a socialist legacy in it and so on and so forth, even can represent a kind of uh, uh, alternative, uh, better, more humane model of economic growth. But the, the case of China Mobile and many now the champion uh, state-owned enterprise show that uh, they are own the, the majority stake still owned by the state. So it is the only difference uh, between this kind of enterprise and the private enterprise in anywhere else in the world. But in terms of the logic of operation, in terms of uh, all these financial tricks that make it happen, uh, they are very much a 100% capitalist enterprises. So they are not uh, superior or very radically different from other big transactional corporations in the world. That's right. And here, and, and you make this point um, toward the end of this chapter, and this is... Um, the first that I'll mention or that I'll mark of what we're going to do now for each one of the chapters moving forward, which is to kind of point to what I like to think of as a nuh-uh moment or sort of a moment where you're like, everyone thinks this, but actually that is true. Or what we can maybe think of um, as the China boom goes boom mm. moment, because we're going to explode an assumption. So here, as you just mentioned, um, the chapter is really emphasizing the fact that, as you you know just described in the case of this example, the China boom is actually dependent on global free trade and the flow of investment, and China does not kind of constitute or emblematize an alternative um, yes. to the dominant global neoliberal order. So I mentioned yeah. that because each one of the chapters really does that as we move forward. It takes something that we, or that some people have argued, have assumed, have um, asserted, and shows that it's actually not the case. Mm-hmm. So, so we move to part two of the book as we move into these chapters. This is a part of the book that looks closely at the impact of the China boom mm-hmm. on the global political economic order and on the demise of Mm-hmm. So chapter four looks very closely at how China's capitalist boom has reshaped global inequality. This is a really mm-hmm. fascinating chapter, I think. Mm-hmm. So inequality has been growing rapidly in China, as you say this. Mm-hmm. At the same time, even the poorest segment of the population has seen growth at a higher rate than the worldwide average of growth. Okay. Yes. So for listeners who may not understand, what's the big deal? Why is that important? Can you talk about this? Why is this important and what implications does this have um, for kind of the main point or points that you're making in this part of the book? Yes, because uh, the people uh, um, like not only scholars, but also practitioners uh, and uh, policymakers uh, in the United Nations and all these uh, um, international organizations, even the IMF, World Bank, and WTO, they have been concerned about uh, rising uh, global inequality, that is inequality of income between countries. And there has been a huge debate going on in among economies, political scientists, and sociology that's where like, this globalization and world trade that we are undergoing uh, is ever feeling world inequality or uh, reducing it. And of course, the world inequality has been constantly on the rise since the Western Industrial Revolution and the history of imperialism, and it didn't stop with uh, decolonization and the end of colonialism. Uh, so China's rise uh, provides us an interesting case uh, because uh, you uh, include China in the calculation of world average income among countries that really China is a big uh, driver in world income inequality reduction, and also uh, also a big driver in world uh, poverty reduction. Um, that uh, 
to in, according to many different measures, the world inequality has been reducing, and then world poverty has been reducing, and most of these uh, achievements are uh, actually the attribute, attributable to the, the economic improvement in China, even among the poorest uh, segments of Chinese population. That there's a big uh, widening inequality among the pace of improvement between, like, for example, people in Shanghai and also people in uh, Guizhou and in the rural area. But even the poorest people in Guizhou uh, has been seeing this uh, the elevation of poverty and improvement in uh, income um, higher than many other developing countries. So China become an interesting case, as uh, many people point out, that it uh, first, it is the big driver of this uh, improvement in poverty and inequality. At the same time, that uh, I'm asking the question and I'm exploring whether the China uh, experience of poverty reduction and inequality reduction can be extended to uh, other developing countries. So in that part, I am uh, telling a more complicated, complicated stories mm-hmm. that uh, because China's uh, in the last 30 years, it's uh, contributed a lot to this poverty inequality reduction, but it's not going to continue because when China approached the middle income category, uh, so first it is more difficult to pull the income uh, further up, at least not uh, with the speed that it used to do it. Uh, at the same time, after China's uh, average income surpassed world average, the more China grow, uh, income grow, then the more unequal the world will become because then China become the middle class or even upper middle class. And when they move up, that uh, the gap between China and the poorer countries will be widening. So the China is going to stop contributing to this uh, world inequality uh, reduction. Uh, and the question is whether the China growth is uh, enhancing or actually hindering the rapid development uh, or poverty alleviation of poorer countries. Uh, then in that regard, the record is quite mixed and uh, it can go both ways depending on the policymakers of different countries. Uh, for one thing, that uh, China definitely uh, helped a lot of African countries to uh, uh, to 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 have a high economic growth. Uh, at this, uh, uh, particularly for the African countries and Latin American countries that export raw materials, uh, commodities to China, so they benefit a lot from the China boom, and the people, uh, the poor people in these countries, benefit a lot. But at the same time, there is a downside. First, this kind of commodity boom is not sustainable, as we can see right now that uh, many commodity exporters, uh, depending on China demand, has been hit hardly when the Chinese economy slowed down. And at the same time, uh, the China boom, uh, though uh, lift up the commodity export sectors of many developing countries, uh, it is also creating a, a lot of uh, obstacles to the industrialization of these countries because the Chinese manufacturing is so uh, powerful and then the, the up until recently, the cost is so low that uh, many of these Latin American countries and African countries and other Southeast Asian countries find it uh, quite difficult to industrialize and compete with Chinese manufacturing in the world market. So the uh, uh, China itself, the rapid growth of China itself is doing good service to reduction in world inequality and, and world poverty. But uh, after this effect fate, uh, it is uh, more uncertain whether uh, the China boom is uh, pressing or occurs to further reduction in this poverty and inequality in the rest of the world. That's right. And in that sense, the chapter explicitly questions um, what you identify as a widespread perception that China has a role as what you call a great equalizer in the yes. economy. And so there's yes. really interesting attention in this chapter for listeners who are particularly um, interested in these issues to the China-Africa trade, to China-Latin America, yeah. as you mentioned. And also there's some really interesting accounting of India in the case yes. of India. And yes. This interest in... Um, sort of China, and in, in particular, um, China-Africa, really con- uh, continues into the next chapter. So, and I want to ask you a little yes. bit about that. So chapter five uh, critiques the idea, so there's another kind of overturning mm-hmm. of an assumption, that China's rise is challenging the global dominance of the U.S. So we're going to yes. get to that in a moment, but um, one of the things, just to pick up on a thread that you were just talking about, mm-hmm. one of the things that's interestingly related to this um, mm-hmm. is um, the point that you make 
make here that China, um, in contradistinction to an, an idea that it's kind of um, undermining or challenging the global dominance of the U.S., it's actually mm-hmm. being perceived um, among some people and among African leaders in particular, yes. you talk about here, as a colonial a neo-colonial power. Yes, yes. Your African leaders voicing a concern with yeah. um, Chinese colonialism. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems interesting and important. Yeah, it is uh, interesting that we see that in North America, in the Western world, there is kind of a conflicting view about China, whether it is a, the rise of China is good or bad. And we can actually equally find this kind of a conflicting views uh, in the developing world, like in Africa. Definitely many people welcome China investment uh, and, and China trade, but also there's an increasing number of politicians and social movement in Africa uh, are more critical of um, uh, China investment, uh, and they see Chinese investment definitely is um, uh, not like the Mao period revolutionary diplomacy that, uh, of course, at that time that Mao also has their own uh, geopolitical uh, uh, calculations and interests uh, in all these activities, but uh, Right now, the Chinese investment uh, is not uh, charity uh, in Africa. So they are just operating like many other capitalist countries and capitalist companies. They want to make profit. They want to exploit natural resources. So on the one hand, China is really, the uh, activities in Africa really um, is not radically different from the the old-style Western investment in Africa and other developing countries. Uh, So it is why the complaint uh, among some African leaders and social movement and the civil society sector that China is uh, another colonial power. But I also point out that it's uh, interesting that even though in the, at the individual country level, China is uh, uh, as bad as or as good as uh, not much different from uh, other uh, colonial, colonial power and capitalist enterprise trying to export uh, Africa resources and things like that. But at the, at, at the aggregate level, that uh, China getting into uh, Africa is creating a new dynamics that can benefit uh, the development of Africa. That uh, because in the um, in the past, Africa has been or it, each African countries has been dependent on. Uh, the market, uh, trading and investment from very limited number of Western countries or, or, or their former colonizers is one country. So it is this kind of, uh, um, dependent on a few market and a few links and make uh, Africa very vulnerable in the negotiation table about anything. Uh, but when China comes in and also, uh, it drive other big emerging powers like India and Brazil also and, um, and South Africa, uh, to come in, uh, and then it create a kind of a competitive environment, even though each of these, uh, foreign investors and, uh, uh, capitalist powers and capitalist pa- company, they are equally capitalist uh, or exploitative or neo-colonial. But uh, when this uh, um, suitor increase and then increase the competition among these uh, multiple suitors, and uh, and then uh, it create a situation that some African countries, uh, if not all, uh, can have a better bargaining position uh, vis-a-vis their foreign investors and uh, and uh, foreign trade partners. Uh, so it. And at the, at the aggregate level, it can create some new opportunities for Africa and other developing countries. Um, so another really important point that this chapter is making, and I, I kind of alluded to this right at the beginning um, in mentioning the kind of major or one major goal here um, in this chapter is a critique of uh, the idea that China's rise is challenging the hegemony of the U.S. Yes. We also talk about sort of the, the fact of that hegemony and yeah. um, China's place in it. So you talk yeah. about the importance of the continuous hegemonic status as the chapter, um, yes. in the words of the chapter, of the U.S. dollar in yes. the international monetary yes. system. Now, this interestingly yes. engages China um, yeah. in a way that um, I think is phrased really, really interesting. Okay, so you say here, China, through its addiction to U.S. Treasury bonds, and you call yes. I mean, as a historian says, among yeah. other things, um, uh, I'm interested in this, you call the U.S. Treasury bonds the new opium, right? Yes. So as uh, through its addiction to U.S. Treasury bonds, China has yes. been supporting the hegemony of the U.S. dollar and thus the global dominance 
yes. the U.S. Um, so yes. uh, can you speak to that a little bit? What's important about that, again, for the larger kind of argument that this part of the book is making? What do we need to understand that you think is crucial about that for the argument here? Yes, uh, I, uh, this is an interesting background of it that didn't go into the book, is that when I start to look into this question uh, around 2009 and 2010, um, many scholars and in the media, uh, they're filled with commentary uh, because 2008, two important things happened. One, of course, is the financial crisis, uh, and later China successfully recovered. So it created a uh, kind of a conception that actually China became a new sole driver of the world economy and U.S. is uh, tanked. At the same time, in 2008, China surpassed Japan to become the biggest uh, creditor to the U.S. in terms of uh, holding of U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, so it created a wide conception and a lot of conversation that uh, China become the biggest creditor to the U.S. when U.S. economy was in tatters, then China will have a really the upper hand, can use this financial power and, and these holdings of U.S. Treasury bonds to back now the U.S. Uh, and then to achieve some geopolitical uh, uh, goal. Um, so even there's, at that time, the financial market has a fear that at some point China will uh, actually it's, uh, sell many of the U.S. Treasury bond holdings and then drive U.S. economy into a deeper uh, quagmire. Uh, and uh, within China, there's also a very uh, kind of triumphalist move and that's uh, the self-conception that China, at that time, is also Olympic years, definitely, that the Beijing Olympic years, that China is a great, the, the biggest uh, credit to the U.S. and then now the U.S. should listen to China's uh, lecturing how they run the economy rather than the other way around many, many, for many, many years. Uh, so it is all this conception and this conception traced back to the moment actually of the rise of the U.S. hegemony uh, in displacing the U.K. in 1956. That is uh, the year because after the Second World War, the U.S. was the biggest uh, holder of U.K. treasury bonds and the uh, U.S. has been the biggest creditor to the U.K. during the Second World War and after the Second World War. And in 1956, there was a Swiss Canal crisis that the UK army uh, invade Egypt and then U.S. want to broker the, the peace settlements and, and ask the UK to withdraw the troops. And UK actually uh, refused to do it. And then in the end, the U.S. Treasury warned that if the, that the U.S. can sell the, the UK bonds in the international market to create a currency crisis for UK, if UK didn't yield to this uh, geopolitical demand from the U.S. in the end, that UK back down and withdraw the troops. So it is a moment uh, that uh, marked the replacement of the UK high Germany by the US high Germany that the US can use these holdings of uh, uh, the government bonds of the UK as a financial weapon to achieve geopolitical means. So many people allude to this kind of episode to look at the China in 2009, 2010 and saying that China is in the same position to the US as US is in the position to the UK back in 1956. Uh, so I'm saying that it is not the case because the whole world economy, the difference between 1950s and now it's in the 1950s when U.S. could use its financial power to uh, achieve geopolitical uh, and uh, to uh, force UK to do what U.S. want UK to do because at that time the whole world economy is already in the kind of U.S. dollar standard. Everybody used U.S. dollar and then the British pound sterling was not that important so that U.S. can do it. But uh, in um, 2008 and even trying to become the biggest creditor to the U.S., China is still very dependent on U.S. markets for its export. Uh, and also the, the world economy is still in the U.S. dollar standard. And all China export, even China export to Europe, were settled in U.S. dollar. And then you have to have U.S. dollar to buy oil, to buy the copper, all kind of commodities, and China need all this U.S. dollar. So the whole world is still in the U.S. dollar standard. And in this situation, China really didn't have this... Uh, geopolitical power that they can derive from the, its holding sort of uh, U.S. Treasury bond. And after all, that China's huge holding of U.S. Treasury bond is, uh, as I said, as that you uh, uh, said, that is addition, addition because China rely a lot on this export-oriented growth, and it is where the dynamics of the economy came from. Uh, and then in exporting uh, and uh, in the global U.S. dollar standard, so China has been wrecking in all this U.S. dollar with this export. So the only place, uh, only asset that is liquid enough and large enough to absorb this uh, trade surface that uh, of China uh, denominated in U.S. dollar is the U.S. Treasury bond. So uh, 
Uh, China is basically forced by its economic model to keep buying U.S. Treasury bonds, so it didn't really have that choice um, and the option to sell the U.S. Treasury bond as it wished and to punish or to to blackmail the U.S. So, uh, and in the end, that the data show that I'm right between 2008 and 2013, as the data show in the book, that uh, actually China holding of U.S. Treasury bond, despite all these Chinese complaints about the fiscal mess in the U.S. and uh, the loss of confidence in the U.S. dollar, uh, China, while they're talking about this kind of complaint that uh, China holding of U.S. Treasury bond actually doubled between 2008 and 2013. So it is really an addiction, even though they say that it's bad, we don't want it. And, but at the same time, they're compelled to, to keep buying more. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. Um, so as we move from Chapter 5 to Chapter 6, and this is the last substantive chapter yeah. um, of the book before the conclusion, so this actually nicely moves us to Word our conclusion. We move yeah. from the question of a post-American world question yeah. mark to uh, focus on global crisis. So yeah. chapter six considers how the particular pattern of capitalist growth in China has generated an increasing economic imbalance, right? Overinvestment, yes. underconsumption in the last two decades. Yeah. And you talk here about the ways that China's economic imbalance actually contributed to the global imbalance that precipitated the crash of 2008 that you've talked a little bit about already. Now, because of this, um, there's a real, um, really serious need to rebalance Chinese economy. This need is really urgent, and you use that language here. Now, how might that happen. You talk a little bit here about the importance of making household consumption and household income a larger share in the national economy, but um, as a way of maybe leading us toward our conclusion, can you talk about this? How do we balance um, China's economy and why is that so important? It's interestingly that uh, the Chinese leaders has been talking about rebalancing and making the household consumption uh, the bigger driver in growth uh, in comparison to investment and export since the late 1990s. But uh, up until very recently, that uh, while they're talking about this significant rebalance, uh, the Chinese economy become more and more imbalanced, that rely more on export and investment, and more so in export because uh, actually, as I point out in the book, all this uh, investment in infrastructure Structures uh, in apartments, in uh, the excessive uh, steel mill, and all that is financed by loans, and which in turn was backed up by the foreign expanding foreign exchange reserve that uh, originated from the export sector. So, basically, it is the economic structures that. Um, uh, uh, rely on export ultimately and also with this reliance it uh, spill over to the investment sector while investment uh, while consumption because domestic uh, household consumption definitely has been growing it's not stagnant it's actually growing quite rapidly in uh, a world standard but the problem is not the lack of absolute growth of consumption, but the fact that the consumption is going not as fast as investment and export. Um, so that uh, China constantly has this problem of producing much, much more than um, the people can consume. So it has to export all these uh, uh, excess uh, capacity and excess uh, goods uh, to the world. And uh, now uh, the world economy particularly the Western markets that China's export engine has been relying on is not doing very well. And then the export growth is still growing. Uh, it's not like the collapse right after 2008 global financial crisis, but it's not as big and as vibrant as before 2008. So China can no longer rely on this uh, export-oriented growth. And uh, and definitely it is very lateral and very uh, rational and reasonable to try to shift to a more... Uh, uh, domestic household consumption driven economy uh, but it has been difficult uh, because of uh, political reasons not economic reasons that uh, uh, China has been more balanced the economy in the 1980s when the policy of the government is tilted toward more to rural sectors so there's the township village enterprise that produce stuff for domestic market rather than export there's a rapid improvement in income on peasants and peasants and starting to like buy electrical appliances and all these consumer goods. So uh, in the 1980s, that uh, the economy growth is uh, much more balanced, uh, but uh, the imbalance actually started and get uh, bigger and bigger uh, since the 1990s when the policy making 
the community in China is tilted toward interest in coastal sectors and state sectors that benefit a lot from the investment and export boom. Um, and uh, the problem now is um, that there's lack in there's in lack of a kind of a political representation of the consumers, uh, which are mostly mostly workers and uh, peasants, uh, to, to move the policy machine uh, back to kind of a uh, mode in which uh, that uh, uh, grassroots consumers are more favored. And let me take one example that uh, right after the 2008 uh, financial crisis, there's a lot of uh, more reform-minded progressive uh, government advisors and economists within China that see that crisis is a good opportunity for China really good, uh, rebalance the economy. Uh, so don't let the, the government waste the crisis. It is a saying at the time. So, so one proposal to uh, we jumpstart the economy and rebalance the economy at that time is to have government uh, providing um, subsidies and uh, extra um, extra spending to give vouchers uh, to peasant uh, consumers to buy uh, electrical appliances and computer and all that. Uh, so it is really, if uh, actually it is a very standard kind of uh, uh, stimulus policy that India and Brazil and many other developing countries do. Uh, but in the end, that the industrial lobby in China uh, successfully lobbied the government to twist the kind of a stimulus policy policy uh, away from giving direct uh, um, um, cash subsidies to peasants to buy electrical appliances to shift it away from that and then shift it to the final policy that the government gives subsidies to the manufacturers of white goods uh, to let them use this extra subsidy to convert into discount to consumers. So in the end, the consumers still get some benefits. Uh, they get discounts. But uh, what happened as it turned out is that many of these manufacturers pocket the government subsidies. Uh, so they don't translate all of these subsidies into consumer discount. And then they, they uh, actually take nearly half of it uh, into their own and then they use it for investment and all other kind of speculative activities. Um, so it is how the policy process um, uh, hinder this kind of a consumption shift. If the government directly uh, subsidizes consumer to buy things, that the uh, consumption can be stimulated um, uh, in a much larger scale. But in the end, it is the industrial lobby that uh, tilt the policy toward the advantage. In the end, the, they, they stimulate uh, consumption, but not as much as it could have been, and then uh, and many of the subsidies didn't go to the, the consumer, but go to the enterprises, and the enterprise uses it for investment and speculative uh, activity that, in the end, make the economy more imbalanced. So it is this kind of political structures that uh, the enterprises um, and uh, urban governments and, and all these uh, vested interests have good access to the government uh, to tilt the policy toward their favor uh, for uh, and also to ask the government to of, often open the tape of uh, cheap loan for them to borrow and then build stuff and then to uh, further increase the investment spree. And uh, then there's low institutionalized uh, advocacy advocate for uh, for the consumers, which is mostly the grassroots uh, workers and peasants. So it is this political structures that is hindering China's rebalancing. Great. Thank you so much, um, Ho Fong. And I'll just say as well, just to put a point on it, um, that as we come to the end of this chapter, the chapter is also challenging and important perception. And um, just as we've been talking about in the case of previous chapters, and this is the perception that China is, um, as the in the words of the book, a savior to the global economy in crisis. Mm-hmm. Instead, it argues yeah. that China is a major source of global economic imbalances and crises. Um, and finally, that the China boom is set to fade. Okay, Ho Feng. So we're we're at our conclusion, and there are so many other things that we could talk about. Right? The book is full of um, fancy theory, or at least engagements. <laughs> what you call fancy theory? It's full of data. It's full of really, really yeah. interesting and important engagements. Um, then we just you. scratched the surface. But given that, um, is there anything in particular that we didn't talk about, but that you'd like to um, mention for listeners or leave listeners with, especially perhaps listeners who haven't yet become readers? 
Yeah, actually, that uh, I uh, many people told me that they're impressed that, uh, by the cover of the book. Actually, that uh, uh, I, I whenever I talk about the book, I have to put this disclaimer that uh, I'm not responsible for the cover, though I like it. Uh, and uh, uh, remembering that uh, in the spring of 2015, when the publisher gave me the cover, so I was taken aback and actually a little bit panicking because uh, uh, putting a Chinese national flag on a pop balloon uh, is going to offend some people's feeling and uh, who kind of uh, see the Chinese national flag as a sacred cow. And also, in the, if you remember, in the spring of 2015, uh, the Chinese stock market is going sky high. Uh, it is the height of the bubble and many people even saying that the Chinese economic slowdown is going to fade away and then China is going to go into another uh, time of prosperity because of this uh, uh, genius uh, government filled stock market boom is going to help enterprise repay the debt and so on and so forth. So I really a little bit worried that if this uh, provocative cover comes out uh, and then I might look bad when the Chinese economy is still look apparent because I know that the fundamental of the economy is not doing very well, but uh, at least it appears that I'm wrong that the Chinese economy is actually going into the next stage of prosperity. Uh, but in the end, that fortunately or unfortunately, that uh, the, uh, the financial turmoil just starting in the fall of 2015 and actually it stabilized a little bit now, but it is still continuing. Uh, and uh, it's made the book and that cover uh, quite timely that uh, and uh, but uh, I have to clarify that actually I see that the, that balloon is not a pop balloon it is a deflated balloon that it can be reflated again and uh, you see that the Chinese government is uh, is what exactly the Chinese government trying to do they will fray the bubble to kind of cover up the economic slowdown so but uh, uh, I'm glad that the book uh, came out in a timely way uh, and uh, uh, it seemed that uh, the Chinese economic travel is, go- is is not going to go away anytime soon. But in the it is only in the short run that um, I am not particularly optimistic about the Chinese economy. But in the long run, I think uh, sooner or later the China will find its way to uh, to rebalance its economy uh, and to grow modestly again. And uh, but uh, China is not going to become the center of the world. It is going on the way, even if it. Uh, fix its economy and rebalance economy is just going to become an ordinary major um, capitalist economic power. It's not going to change the world uh, system of capitalism fundamentally and uh, it will be like Japan and Germany and side by side with all other new emerging power. Uh, so we are not going to heading towards a brave new world. It is going to be an old world, uh, an old order with a new capitalist power in the end. So sorry, listeners, if you were expecting a brave new world, we're here to tell you it's not going to happen. Well, not going to happen because of China. Maybe it is still going to happen, but not because of China. Okay. Because so of maybe else. it'll happen because of the podcast revolution or something. That's what Could be. Think about Could well be more positive. <laughs> so, Hopong, now that the book is out and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Yeah, and uh, then two, briefly speaking, I have two projects going on. Uh, one is actually a direct outgrowth of the book because uh, I talk about the fact that uh, trying to purchase a U.S. Treasury bond is an addiction, uh, rather than a leverage over the U.S., and actually the Chinese leader definitely know it. Uh, they just don't admit it. Uh, the sign that they know it is that uh, they know that they're addicted to the U.S. Treasury bond so far as the world is still in the U.S. dollar standard. Uh, and then the only way to get out from this addiction is to improve and increase the international use of the RMB, its own currency. So China uh, can uh, settle its trade with RMB and then uh, uh, ideally to use RMB to buy commodities and oil and other world resources. Uh, so it is why the Chinese leadership is very active in promoting the internationalization of the RMB. So my uh, new project, one of the new projects right now is to look at this uh, political and sociological dynamics and the dilemmas and the challenges of this internationalization project that has something to do uh, with uh, CCP power, which is uh, fun- uh, one of the, the foundation of CCP power now is its control of credit. So this internationalization is going to require the CCP to let go some of this power. So what would this political impact would be? 
And uh, and also the very important part of this internationalization of RMB process is the um, uh, using Hong Kong as offshore uh, RMB market uh, then to defend and maintain Hong Kong autonomous status. But at the same time, it has political social backlash. Uh, so how the Chinese government is deal with this kind of dilemma of uh, the necess- economic necessity to keep Hong Kong at the arm length to develop it as a RMB offshore center and to how to contain the political and uh, opposition that going on from this autonomy is uh, the thing that I have been looking at. Uh, another project is looking at uh, is uh, less developed, so it is more more or less about the political economy of U.S.-China policy. Uh, to look back to the 1990s, uh, the Clinton administration about uh, different lobby groups and uh, industrial financial uh, sectors, how they interact uh, with um, different social sectors in uh, in the U.S. Uh, to create a kind of a, a policy regime that favor opening up China trade that uh, lead up to the China accession to the WTO and create a backlash that in the U.S. now facing against free trade and against China. Well, thank you for taking time away from that um, to talk with me about this book, Ho Fung, and best of luck with that work. And thank you for this conversation. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you very much for interviewing me and reading the book. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.